You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, a Hollywood celebrity recently passed away, and you may or may not have heard about it. You see, this guy was different in many ways from the usual celebrity because he was a mountain lion. We've all experienced disappointment in our lives at some point, but for some tourists, particularly those visiting a city in Europe, can the shock of a letdown actually be enough to bring down their entire worldview and spark an identity crisis? We've talked about jingles before on the show, but this one is the granddaddy of them all. How the Chili's Baby Back Ribs jingle went from, well, this is dumb, to pop culture legend. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, my friend, are you a cat guy? And of course, I ask you this because I know you're not. And I want to give you the chance to defend yourself before I just just pants you and take you down. I don't have anything against cats. I'm not aggressively anti-cat. I just don't. Uh, I'm not. I would not consider myself a cat person. I don't want to bring a cat into my home. But you can have one in your home. That's fine. Well, we had a family cat who uh, was named Mr. Feeney. Incredible name, by the way. Named him myself. Uh, and Mr. Feeney was beloved by really the entire local community where my parents lived and still live. And you know, my dad has a business right beside my parents' house, and the cat would go back and forth between the house and the business. Customers loved him. Everyone loved him, except for Jay. And I have a suspicion that the reason Jay didn't love him is because Jay never learned how to properly pet a cat, so he was petting him backwards. That is slander uh, against me. I was petting Mr. Feeney several years ago the right way. He was on my lap. He was enjoying it. We were having a good time. I was alone. You were not there. And uh, he just turned around and he looked up at me and I stopped petting him and I said, oh, hey, Mr. Feeney. And before I could get the words out of my mouth, three claws right across my face as fast as possible. (laughs) And then he ran away for literally no reason whatsoever. Now, I know that Mr. Feeney has passed on, and I'm not speaking ill of the dead. Well, it sure sounds like you're speaking ill of the dead. And also, cats are a good judge of character. (laughs) You take that for what it's worth. But Jay, while some people would say that the most famous feline of all time is not Mr. Feeney, it's perhaps the legendary comic strip character Garfield, when it comes to real cats, it's hard to argue with the most famous feline being a mountain lion named P-22, who until his recent passing freely and uniquely roamed the legendary grounds of the Griffith Park Conservatory in Los Angeles, California. You see, Jay, whether or not you knew it at the time, you've most likely seen images of P-22. Since his discovery in 2012, P-22 became the symbol of wildlife culture and conservation in California. To put it dramatically, P-22 was a mountain lion that walked and lived in places that you do not see mountain lions. The streets of Hollywood. 
In fact, it's hard to get more Hollywood than how P-22 rose to fame. Named P-22 because P stands for Puma, and 22 was the number Puma that he represented in an ongoing national Puma study that he was a part of. P-22 was caught in 2012 near the Griffith Park Conservatory, where he mainly lived, and outfitted with an electronic neck collar so his location could be recorded over time. It was in 2013 that it all happened. That's when he rose to stardom, when National Geographic photographer Steve Winter decided to pursue getting some images of a puma and settled on P-22. For over a year, Winter had put up trail cameras all around Griffith Park, hoping to get an image of P-22. But Jay, while it took a long time, the wait was worth it. Winters eventually did get his picture, and it became legendary. The picture is of P-22, in front of the Hollywood sign. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. From there, the legend of the cat just grew. He was featured in TV shows and books and even the subject of expensive pieces of art. Jay, the famous feline was still an animal, though, and did animal-type things. In 2016, he jumped a nine-foot fence surrounding the L.A. Zoo, and uh, because we're a family show, we'll just say that Killarney, the resident koala, wasn't heard from again. (laughs) The zoo did not press charges, though, and yes, press charges was the official language used, and P-22 got away scot-free. He also faced multiple illnesses that he was captured and treated for over the course of his 12-year life. A few months ago, though, Jay, the typically friendly cat, who outside of the zoo incident rarely caused a stir despite his unique roaming habits, started to change a little bit. Appearing to be fairly sick and agitated most of the time, P-22 started to venture more often into residential neighborhoods and staying longer. This culminated with a pair of chihuahuas, once again, we're a family show, disappearing off of their leashes, if you catch my drift. The cat was tranquilized and captured, and uh, upon his capture, wildlife officials determined that he had recently been hit by a car, most likely causing the change in his personality. Aside from other health issues, P-22 was suffering from a fractured skull and internal organ failure. Jay, he was euthanized on December 17th of 2022. And while the legend is really hard to truly grasp of this Hollywood cat, I mean, I mean, P-22 will perhaps stand alone in history as a wild animal who lived somewhere that he didn't belong. Perhaps his official obituary featured in the LA Times best explained his appeal and lasting impact. He was an aging bachelor who adjusted to a too small space in the big city, the Times wrote, describing his life journey. The good and the bad, the feeling out of place sometimes, and the fight for survival. This is something, Jay, that all of us can relate to in one way or another, and it was especially true of P-22, a cat that will go down in history as a legend in the California wildlife scene. Well, I did just look up the photo of P-22 in front of the Hollywood sign, and it is absolutely majestic. I mean, it looks like an album cover. I mean, I'm picturing, like, you know, Kevin Bacon coming out in the morning with his uh, coffee, standing on his porch, and he's just like, oh, there he is again. You know, just seeing him walking across his lawn or something. Well, really, I mean, when it comes to famous animals, it's got to be P-22, it's Air Bud. Because, I mean, Airbud could play basketball. Yeah, but Airbud has probably been several different dogs. I mean, it's not the same yeah. dog in, the, in every movie, I would imagine. At this point, Airbud's just an idea. It's not even a, it's not even a dog. Well, you can't expect the dog to be good at every sport. <laughs>
So Dave, uh, we're going to be talking a lot in this segment about disappointment, but particularly like when your disappointment happens because your expectations are not met of something. So can you think of a time in your life where you just had really, really high expectations for something and then those expectations were just not met and you were super disappointed? Yeah, so a few years ago, I went to Wrigley Field where the Chicago Cubs play. Uh, And I went with a friend of mine to see the Atlanta Braves play, my favorite team. And it was the last season of my all-time favorite player, Chipper Jones. When we bought the tickets, they're expensive because tickets to see the Cubs are expensive. It was Chipper's last year. We bought the tickets. The ticket said on it, obstructed view seat. And so we thought, well, I mean, you're in a stadium, like obstructed view. Okay. It's not going to be that big a deal. So we get the tickets. We go. It's awesome. We get to the stadium. Wrigley's this old stadium. That's foreshadowing for the uh, obstructed view. (laughs) Old stadium, that's legendary. We get to our seats. Jay, when it said obstructed view, it meant obstructed view. There was literally a wooden pole in front of my seat. I couldn't see the field at all. (laughs) I couldn't even see the game. It was not a secret. I mean, they told you on the ticket. They didn't lie. I'll give them that. I'll give them that. (laughs) Well, we're going to be focusing particularly on the city of Paris uh, here. Um, You've never been to Europe, right? Are you wanting to go to Europe one day? I've never been. Would love to go. Yeah, I've been to Europe uh, a couple times, but it's always been... I do feel like I'd be kidnapped. I'm just going to throw that in. There's something (laughs) that I don't know what it is. Well, that's the thing. Like I've uh, I've been to Europe a handful of times, but it's always been leading trips of students. Uh, My wife and I have taken students abroad uh, multiple times, and uh, we went to Paris once, and I remember thinking, and we had this conversation like this wasn't really what I expected. Like, it's kind of wah, wah. Like, it's a little bit of a letdown uh, in a way. And so when I started reading about what's called Paris Syndrome, which is what we're going to talk about uh, in this segment, it started to make a lot of sense, to be honest. Uh, It's a Dave Paris Syndrome. It's a term that was coined back in the 1980s to describe this phenomenon in which a small minority of visitors to Paris experience something very different than what they expected to experience, and that triggers a mental and physical breakdown. It's this very extreme version of culture shock in which the expectation does not match the reality, and that tension creates sort of this like extreme identity crisis. Observers who have studied those affected with parasyndrome report that it can cause nausea, vomiting, even hallucinations, along with extreme emotional anxiety and intense depression. Now, it's important to note a couple things here, though, Dave, before we go on. And one is that parasyndrome, it's pretty rare. It's not like a ton of people are walking around Paris just like openly weeping and losing their minds. But two, and what's also interesting about this, is that parasyndrome was coined in Japan and it is most widely reported as affecting Japanese tourists specifically than any other tourists to Paris. In fact, Dave, the Japanese embassy in Paris not only has to fly back about 20 tourists a year under medical supervision for Paris syndrome, but the embassy also runs a 24-hour helpline for tourists experiencing it. So then if this is the case, why are Japanese tourists so much more susceptible to Paris syndrome? Rodanthe Zanelli, a professor of cultural sociology at the University of Leeds, told Live Science this, We are talking about a culture that historically had a completely different belief system and development trajectory from places in Europe. These cultural differences, as well as likely unmet romantic expectations, may explain why Japanese visitors are at an elevated risk for Paris syndrome. 
So Dave, Paris syndrome can sort of, in a wider sense, be categorized as what we call culture shock. Matthew Deflam, a professor of sociology at the University of South Carolina, described culture shock to live science as sort of a loss of meaning in a way when suddenly surrounded by a totally different world than the one that you're used to. But beyond that, Deflam noted that generally speaking, Japanese culture has sort of a very romanticized view of the West, and especially Europe. And that sort of comes from how Paris is typically represented in films or books, which tends to focus on art and coffee and little restaurants and conversations and such. But in reality, Paris is just not like this. In a 2014 study carried out by Condé Nast Traveler, they named Paris the world's fourth most unfriendly city. A 2020 study conducted by CEO World Magazine ranked Paris the rudest city in Europe, and a 2021 study by Internations ranked Paris the third least friendly city. Deflam also notes that Japan has this very orderly and polite culture, and confrontation can be very sharp between the not-so-friendly Paris culture. But Dave, is Paris syndrome exclusive to just Paris? That was a question that I wanted to answer to as well, right? Well, Rondante Zanelli, the University of Leeds professor I mentioned earlier, she doesn't think so. She describes the phenomenon as just this very complex psychic phenomenon that has to do with disappointment, even despair, about the way reality just doesn't match our romantic expectations. And with that, Dave, I'll give you the only cure for Paris syndrome from Professor Hiro Akai Ota, who first identified the syndrome over 30 years ago. In his own words, the only cure is to board a flight home and never return to Paris. Would it be fair to say that there's also a cure called get a grip? <laughs> like, just get over it? Oh, yeah. There was a, whenever I was researching this, there was an article in The Atlantic, and it was like, um, the title of it was great. It was like, Paris Syndrome, a first world problem that no one cares about, or something like that. It was like, it's like no oh, one the feels Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it's too short. Oh, I start throwing up. Uh, I'll tell you another time I was disappointed when I went to the Smithsonian. This is more on me than the item. But when I went to the Smithsonian a couple years ago, and I, I just, before I went, I looked up, like, what are the most interesting things to make sure you see? And one of them, of course, is the Hope Diamond, which is, I believe, the most valuable thing in the Smithsonian. It's estimated to be worth between, like, 250 and $350 million. Well, at the end of the day, it's just a diamond. You know, so we, we went in there, we saw it. There's tons of people. It takes forever to get to it. And then you look at it for about three seconds. Jay, I know you used to work at Burger King, and so while I would typically ask you about something more related to the topic we're about to get into, I'd rather ask you to tell my favorite of your Burger King stories. I was working in high school, I was probably like a senior or something, and I was working the cash register, and a guy came in, and he, him and his son kind of like ran into the bathroom really quick and they were in there for a while. And then he came out and very calmly walked with the cash register and he was like, hey, um, I just wanted to tell you, like my son kind of had like a little bit of an accident in there. He just kind of like threw up a little bit. And um, I just wanted to tell you guys just so you could like make sure it was clean. It, it did not, it just didn't seem like a big deal. Like the way he said it, it was yeah. just like, like he eh, hey, it's bit. just a little mess, no big deal. So I walk into the bathroom, I open the door and I've never seen anything like what I saw in that bathroom. It was like a human being just detonated. <laughs> I mean, there was th- vomit on the sink, combustion. on the urinal, 
on the toilet, the floor, the walls, and both sides of the door to the back. I don't. It was on both sides of the door. It was oh. everywhere. Like it was like he. It was like the scene from um, The Exorcist. Like it was. I mean, his head was just spinning and vomit was going everywhere. So I go back there. I tell the manager, like, "Holy crap! There is like the worst thing I've ever seen in this bathroom." So he's like, "I got just the thing." And he comes out from the back room, and he has an entire hazmat suit. We're talking like you could clean up a nuclear spill with it. I don't know why it was in Burger King. I don't know what it was originally used for, but I put on this hazmat suit. I mean, it's like full fingers, feet, helmet, like it's everything. And I go in in a nuclear. Yeah, I mean, it looks like I'm surviving a nuclear meltdown in like the 50s or something. And I go in and I have to clean this entire bathroom with this hazmat suit on. I get out, take the hazmat suit, give it back to him, never see it again. I thought you were going to say never see him again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jay, that's a fantastic story. And Burger King has been on my mind recently. And not because of that story, even though I love it, or that I've eaten there any time in the last decade. But the other day, my wife and I were watching TV, and a Burger King commercial came on featuring a simple little jingle that the company has been using as of late. It goes, BK, have it your way, with some other throwaway throwaway lines. But that's the gist. BK, have it your way. Well, my wife said, man, I hate that song. I can never get it out of my head. To which I replied, hun, which I call her hun, hun, (laughs) that's exactly what they want you to say. Well, not the hate part, but the in-your-head part. Jay, while the jingle is catchy and what we would call an earworm, something we've discussed before on the show, a song that gets stuck in your head, it probably won't be a part of the greater culture one day. It'll run its course. In fact, very few jingles, while memorable, have ever become a part of pop culture like one of them has. That jingle... The Chili's Baby Back Rib song. I want my baby back, baby back, Chili's. Jay, in the 1990s, American companies were starting to evolve to figure out ways to somehow incorporate celebrity-centered tie-ins. Jingles, being an ancient advertising method of the past, even in the 90s, had been replaced by the licensing of pre-existing hit songs. You were lucky enough to produce a top 40 radio hit? Great! We want to use it to sell sandwiches. This was a time when really good agencies would send out Christmas cards that would have a blank before the word bells. And when you'd open it up, it would say, we don't do jingles. That was the feeling at the time, that jingles were the lowest form of advertising. Guy Bomarito told Vice in 2017. And you see, Jay, Guy would know. Because Guy wrote the Chili's jingle. In 1995, Chili's decided it wanted to push its baby back ribs. And despite what other companies thought, Chili's thought, well, maybe a jingle is the way to go. The ad agency, GSD&M, an agency where Bomarito was working as the executive creative director back then, had the Chili's ad account at that time. But due to a recent failed advertising campaign, the agency was scared they were going to lose the account. So when Chili's asked, they had to say yes. The restaurant gave the agency six weeks to come up with a jingle. And so Bomarito, who was actually too embarrassed by the request to even tell his colleagues, wrote the jingle by himself in secret in five minutes. Jay, when Chili's approved of the jingle, which they did kind of unenthusiastically, 
Bomarito figured it would be used maybe once and then go away. Oh, how wrong he was. The song, regarded as the most famous jingle by most industry experts, would run in some form for decades after, even still appearing from time to time today. It was even re-recorded by famous blues musicians. And in 2002, it was actually re-recorded by the boy band NSYNC as part of a sponsorship deal that had Chili's sponsoring the band's tour that year. And Jay, the song just hasn't ever really stopped. It was featured in the comedy movie Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, an episode of the show Scrubs, and was even covered by Steve Carell playing Michael Scott in an episode of the TV show The Office. In short, Jay, this little jingle, a song that took five minutes to piece together, has done what no jingle before or probably after has done. It transcended its original intention and jumped into the funnel of pop culture. Well, there's a video that was floating around um, just within the past couple months of like all the footage of the recording of that song. Did you see that kind of flow? It was on like Instagram and Twitter and stuff. And it's so interesting. Like there's people in the studio kind of like filming these guys doing the vocals for this and uh, just watching them create it. Like they're so passionate while they're singing it. I mean, they're so into it. It's like you're watching like just the most amazing blues concert you've ever seen, but they're singing the the Chili's theme song. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Now, if you want a real Burger King story, it's the raccoon story. I can't remember that one. (laughs) Do you not remember the raccoon story? It's probably the number one most requested Burger King story from people that I know. At Burger King, there was a guy who, the the whole cast of characters that worked there were just some super interesting people. And one of the guys that worked there was named Randy. Classic. I don't know what his last name was, but Randy was like a Vietnam veteran or something, and he never spoke, and he like made the burgers as fast as you could possibly imagine, like just at unreal speeds <laughs> that a human should not be able to make not a burger that fast. much attention to detail. Well, he was also just like yeah. very cold of a person. Like he just didn't really talk to anyone. You know, he's probably like in his, I mean, he's old, a lot older uh, and I'm like 15 or 16 or something, yeah. or not 15, but I'm like 16 or 17 or something. Uh, and so one time my friend who worked there, Will, uh, he was pushing in these like containers that were, they store outside that have like the fry grease and like stuff like that. Uh, you wheel them in and basically you like empty the fry grease into this giant container. Uh, and so he's wheeling them in, he gets inside, he opens it up and he shuts the lid really fast. And he's like, there's a raccoon in here. Like there, there's a raccoon inside of this thing. Like it must've gotten in uh, to like lick the fry grease or something. I don't know. In this moment, he's sort of frozen with fear. It's like, he yeah. doesn't want it to get loose in the store. So Randy, just calmly, without saying a word, grabs the hose, connects it, lets the fry grease in, okay? Fries this raccoon alive. Yes, I'm not... I don't, I've told I you this story this before. Story. This is not the first time I've ever told he you this. Fried the there are witnesses to this grease? story. He just let the grease in. The grease is like <laughs> 600 degrees Fahrenheit or something. So it comes in. We're just standing there in shock. We're in high school. We're too young to be watching an You're animal murdered you know, by, be uh, by murdered grease. in front of us. 
Uh, and uh, Randy just like calmly like wheels this cart back outside, and uh, w- the the raccoon was gone. Like the next day, like you walk out to the dumpster, and he's like solidified in the grease, like this like uh, monster, you know. 